that this is one of the sweetest passages in the Bible that the Protestants talk about the Beatitudes and so on and, and how Christ had such a wonderful, sweet message here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And reflecting on that a little bit, even though these are attitudes we ought to have, and you know, 95% of everything really, I, I'd read in a, something just yesterday, it says that 95% of life is all about attitude. And, and I believe that that is correct, of whether the exact percentage or not, but the, certainly the bulk of everything is about attitude. And all kinds of things can happen to you, but what really matters is what your attitude is toward what happened. Uh, if you decide to have a good attitude about things, uh, then they're not as bad. But if you have a bad attitude, it shows. Not only does it affect you, but it affects others around you. So, isn't basically Christianity and everything else primarily about attitude? Our attitude toward God? Our attitude toward each other? Uh, it's all a matter of attitude. And that's why... We have to work on our little children from the time they're very small babies about their attitude. Is it rebellious? Is it angry? Is it compliant and humble and meek and, and obedient? And judging attitudes is probably the biggest key that parents have in rearing children, is getting those attitudes to be where they ought to be. And I submit to you that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are very likely the toughest scriptures or the toughest passage in the Bible. It's simple in one sense. It's straightforward and easy to understand for the most part. But boy, living up to it is something else. Well, even those first attitudes he tells us to have, uh, they're wonderful attitudes. But boy, try... Try controlling yours and, and having the attitudes that he talks about there that we talked about last week. And, and then he tells us that we're a goldfish bowl, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So not only do you need these attitudes, but you're going to be judged and people will think of God in the same way that they think of you because of the way you act and whether you act like God or not. So we're a constant example to anyone around us. And that's a difficult thing. We, we don't like to be looked at or pointed at or whatever. Uh, and we have to be the standard. And then he tells us that, oh, you thought the law was done away? No, you've got to keep it even more than you used to. Now you've got to even control your thoughts. So it gets tougher and tougher as you go through this chapter. Uh, but we got down to about verse 38, where I want to pick it up today, Matthew 5, verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's the way judgment basically was meted out in the Old Testament. Uh, a life for a life, whatever. Uh, but I say to you that you resist not evil. When someone does something to you that is evil or bad or not good, not only are you, are you supposed to control your attitude about it, he says, don't resist. We're not to resist evil. Now, there are certain things that Christ resisted. We have to, have, we have to understand various parts of life. Uh, he did not allow the money changers to continue in the temple. He ran them out very clearly. And the Pharisees and Sadducees were evil. Now, he did not return evil to them as they were evil to others or even to himself. But he did let them know very clearly what their spiritual status was and, and who they were and how they were snakes and white and sepulchers and so on. So there's a time to tell things the way they really are. And it does say that a householder would not have allowed his house to be broken into if he had known what time 
the burglar would have been there. So it's not wrong to stop crime uh, or bodily violence that somebody might do to you. But at the same time, we are to have the attitude of not bristling or getting defensive or being spiteful or angry or vengeful if someone does do something to us. To always remember, God said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It's not yours. So if someone does evil to you, you're not supposed to plot vengeance or plot revenge or to think of all the nasty, dirty things you'd like to do to them because of what they did to you. We're just not to have that attitude is what he's talking about here. And it can't even come to the physical, for that matter. Uh, Whosoever shall smite you on your right cheek, turn to him also the other. Now, we have to understand these primarily in spiritual terms. Just like we talked last week about if your right hand offends you, Uh, cut it off, or if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. No way does he mean for us to cut off our hand or pluck out our eyeball. But what he means is, if that hand or that eye is causing offense, you get rid of the attitude or the sin that's causing the offense. So, we can be smitten on the right cheek with words. We can be smitten in a lot of different ways. Uh, and sometimes physical. <clears throat> but what good does it do to have an all-out brawl and go go into a fist fight? <laughs> Smite you on the right cheek, turn the other one. Uh, that's not easy to do. In other words, be willing to take a lot, is what he's saying here. You don't have to resist or return evil, but we be willing to take it. Be willing to take what people dish out at you, whether it be verbal or physical, financial, whatever. And if any man will sue you at the law and take away your coat, somebody wants what you got. Are you supposed to defend yourself in every way and file a countersuit (laughs) to get what's his since he tried to get what was yours? No. He says, if he wants your coat, he sues you to get it, let him have your cloak also. You might might as well lose your coat and your cloak. In other words, again, be willing to give. Don't hold back. There's a great deal here about God's attitude, and it really boils down to what Herbert Armstrong said was give instead of get. You can live the get way of life, or you can live the give way of life. So if somebody wants something, okay, be willing to give. Don't always be grasping and greedy and trying to get, <clears throat> but be willing to be defrauded, Paul put it, and uh, be, be done wrong rather than go to court with them. Whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, go with him too. Uh, it's been said that, well, the, the Roman soldiers made them carry their gear or whatever, their weapons for a mile, and said, all right, go to, and that's all that meant. Well, it means a lot more than that. He's not talking about Roman soldiers here necessarily, he might be using the example, but he's writing to the apostles about their conduct and their way of approaching the world and the people around them, and what they were to teach other people to do, because Christ was teaching them what he wanted them to teach others. So this is for all of us. Give to him that asks you, and from him that would borrow or take from you, turn not you away. Now that's very hard to do sometimes. If it's a friend or a relative, usually you're going to give it to them anyway. It's not borrow in any case, because most cases they won't pay it back They'll promise, they'll make all kinds of promises, but most of the time if you loan something, you might as well just figure on going getting you another one because it either won't come back or it'll be broken in pieces. These are hard sayings. They sound good and they're right, but when the rubber meets the road, they're hard to accomplish. 
You've heard it, it has been said, verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, that makes good common, normal human sense, doesn't it? Love your neighbor and hate your enemies because they're trying to hurt you. But I say to you, love your enemies. If you have somebody that despises you, hates you, you have to find a way to love them. Now, God loves the whole world, and the world is sin-sick. It's upside down and backward in every way, and yet God still loves the people of this world. Now, does He bless them? Yeah, He even does that too. What does He say? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you. What's your normal reaction when someone curses you? Can you think of any things you might say back to them? Or, or maybe even a one-uppance? Maybe you'll call them something worse than they just called you? And you get in a shout and argue and cursing match? You've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. But that doesn't make it right. Do good to them that hate you. There are people that around, and you'll encounter them sometime in life, probably, that just hate the very fact that you draw breath. You, not only can't you do anything right, you, you couldn't even die right uh, because of the attitude they have toward you. And he says, do good to them that hate you. And that's not an easy chore. How do you swallow your vanity, your ego, your pride, your self-defensive system and figure out a way to do good to somebody that hates you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's more of a mental, emotional, spiritual thing. Despitefully using you or having spite against you and persecuting you for what you believe or what you do and they don't like the way you are or what you believe, you have to pray for them that God will make them part of His kingdom at the the bare minimum and that they be blessed. If you're supposed to bless those that curse you, then it isn't bad to ask for God's blessing on those who persecute you and despitefully use you. I think we can all think back in our lives about times when we've been at odds with people. Uh, I mean, you know, you can go clear back to grade school, junior high, or high school about people that didn't like you or didn't for whatever reason, or cousins or uncles or friends or you name it. Uh, What's been your reaction as a human being? I guess it hasn't been what he's saying right here very often unless you've come to have the Spirit of God and begun to think like God thinks. So, he says this is the way to we're to treat people who do bad things toward us. Why? Verse 45, That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Just because somebody's righteous doesn't mean that it rains on their land and then it stops at the fence because someone evil lives next door. God doesn't think that way. He thinks, I'm going to bless all people. I'll send rain to everybody. Now there comes a time when judgment is there when he will send famine and drought. But even then, it will come on the just and the unjust to some degree. Uh, He's going to send a great tribulation soon. And even those who have been called into his church, 90% of them are going to go into it. So they're going to be receiving the same thing the world around them is. Now, he has said he's going to make a difference. Uh, So there is a time when God makes judgments and he blesses those whom he will bless and curses those whom he will curse. 
And he even makes will make decisions and judgments about whether we go into the lake of fire or into his kingdom. So there, there's a point at which he doesn't do that. But what he's saying here in general is that his attitude is, it doesn't matter whether somebody's good or bad, I'm going to treat them right. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to be helpful to them. I'll do what I can for them. And while I've got the rain system going, I'm not going to stop it just because somebody's evil. It'll rain on their land too. So he says we're to have that attitude toward people. We shouldn't despise or put down or feel that we're above anybody uh, because we understand the truth. That doesn't make us better than anybody else. It makes us blessed that God has given us an opportunity to understand now and maybe be in the first resurrection. We have that blessing, but it doesn't make us better than anybody. And same thing in the church. Just because now that it's split into hundreds of fractions and factions, doesn't mean that we should make enemies of those who disagree with us or are not with us or whatever. They shouldn't be our enemies. We should try to love them and ask God's blessing on them in whatever way we can. There are groups around that, boy, if you're not in their group, you're nothing. They won't even let you speak to your own mate in some cases uh, because they're not in that particular group. Uh, no, that's just not that's not what Christ is teaching here. So if we get persecuted, and they do think a lot of people around the world, I think most of the church, we're, we're not unknown out here. Most of the church knows about us around the world one way or another, but uh, they despise us. They think that some of the things that we've learned are not right. But they'll learn one of these days that they are right. But should we put them down or think we're better than them in any way? And then suddenly we're self-righteous. What good does that do? We need the righteousness of God, as explained here, as opposed to the self-righteousness and looking down or condescending, condescending uh, on other people. We just can't be that way. Verse 46, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? It's easy to love somebody that loves you. It's hard to love somebody that hates you. <laughs> That's hard to do. We've got to be better than the publicans and the Pharisees. Even they love the ones that love them. If you salute your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the publicans so? If they're our brethren, they're in our own group or whatever... Uh, and we salute and are friend, friendly with them, well, we're supposed to be that one that way with everybody. Be you therefore mature, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is mature. So we're not like to be, to be like kids. Well, they're not speaking to me. I won't speak to them. Well, there are times when people are marked or whatever for, for specific reasons that we're to stay away from them. But other than that, uh, we are to try to be friendly with any and everybody, uh, salute them, say hi, wave, whatever, uh, do the best we can to get along, and as Paul put it, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men, as much as is at all possible. And sometimes it seems to be impossible, and sometimes in this life it is impossible. But we've got to do our part. We've got to try. And he says, Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them, otherwise you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. More and more, this teaching in 5, 6, and 7 points to the future. It points to the kingdom of God and how we'll, we are to live together in peace and love and in harmony with everyone in that kingdom, so that it is a kingdom of peace, not war, and not fighting. So he's showing us here that in spite of the fact that we are living in a war, in a world full of war, and anger, and bitterness, and frustration, and selfishness, and greed, that those are not to be our attitudes. 
that in spite of everything that is around us and everything we have to deal with day in and day out, that we are to have the attitudes and be building the attitudes that we need to have throughout all eternity in the kingdom of God. Because God is certainly is just not going to allow anger, bitterness, hate, meanness, malice, revenge, uh, greed. Those just won't be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is going to be absolutely, totally the opposite of what we are around today. So what he's telling us here is, in spite of what's around you, I want you to act like you're in the kingdom of God. Not look down on people because you think you're better than them, but, but react to them the way God reacts to human beings. And God sent His only Son because He loved everybody on earth. And we have to come to love everybody on earth as a human being. Don't have to love everything they do. But we have to love them. So when somebody does do evil to us, we don't have to love necessarily what they're doing, but we have to find a way to love them as a human being made in the image of God and that they are a child of God. And accept and understand that and know that God loves them as an individual in spite of what they do. Now, if they don't change what they do, they may go into a lake of fire. And before that, he gives an opportunity in putting them in the fire of tribulation so that they go through an awful lot of horror and then come up probably in the second resurrection. And then they're willing to be taught and say, you know, I was greedy and selfish and vain and lustful and, and all of those things back then, but I don't want to be that way anymore. I want to be like God. So he's giving us a heads up here and telling us how we ought to be acting in spite of everything around us. Now, is that tough or what? <laughs> this is about as tough as it gets right here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which everybody says are just the sweetest things that Jesus said. <laughs> I'll tell you what, there's not, there's not much sweet here. Uh, he's telling us to be sweet, and to be sweet, we have to go against everything that our human nature tells us. And it is a constant battle and fight. If you do not live in a battle every day, then something's wrong. Somebody told me a few years ago, says, well, I finally come to understand grace, and now my life is so easy, I just know everything's taken care of. I'm under grace. And I thought... You don't even begin to understand what the battle is down here. Uh, yeah, we get unmerited pardon, grace, and we know God is willing to forgive us. But he also tells us, here's the standard you've got to live up to. And given human nature, if you're going to come to have the attitudes of the Father and the Son and be like our Father in heaven... You have a daily battle, a daily struggle. I mean minute to minute and second to second you struggle. This life was not made to be easy. If people think life is easy, then they don't know what life is about. They don't understand God and they don't understand this book. Because there's nothing easy about it. He even says that before he gets done with this, with this sermon. He says, straight, hard, difficult, narrow is the way. Uh, that leads to life. What about the example of, not in this sermon, but in uh, about the uh, camel and the needle? <laughs> to get into the kingdom of God for a rich man is like a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, whether that was a low gate in Jerusalem or, or literally, uh, doesn't matter. It was hard for the camel either way. And the camel, even if it was a low gate, he had to pretty well rearrange himself to get under it. And to go through the eye of a needle, uh, he's just saying it's not easy to do. So if people think that with grace everything's smooth and easy and I've got it made, I don't have to fight, they don't understand human nature and they don't understand the kingdom of God. Because this nature that you and I have has to be changed. And he tells every one of us, 
doesn't matter which group you're in, in Revelation 2 or 3, which era of the church, every one of them, all seven, are told to overcome if you will enter into the kingdom of God. And what experience I've had, overcoming is pretty tough. You have habits, you have thought channels, you have ruts in your life. And those aren't easy to change. Overcoming those is not easy. Living up to what we've read so far here is about as tough as it gets to control every thought. And isn't that what Christ said? Let this mind be in you, which was in him, and to walk as he walked, and to think as he thought, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Now that's natural. You got up this morning and every thought you had was in the captivity of Christ, wasn't it? Has been all day long. I really rather doubt it. Don't tell me it's easy. Don't tell Christ it's easy. (laughs) What did he have to do? He had to sweat blood to do what his father asked him to do. He knew he had the grace of God. But did he find it easy? Well, before he went and was killed and persecuted and tormented, he went through a tough time. It wasn't easy. Living on this earth without sinning was not easy. So he's telling us right here, this is the way I want you to be. Uh, don't do your alms before men verse 2 therefore when you do your alms do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory of men verily I say to you they have their reward if they want to do good and they want to tell everybody about it he says that's the only reward they're going to get is the accolades of men oh you're so wonderful you're so generous you're so great thank you for donating blah 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 and uh, that's all you get. That's the end of your reward. No reward from God in heaven. Well, what are we here for? There's only one reason I draw breath on this earth. And that is to receive a reward from God in heaven. This life doesn't mean anything other than that. You can live 5, 10, 20, 40, 70, 80, 90, 100 years on this earth. And then it's over. It's gone. And unless God resurrects you and puts you in His kingdom to live forever, this didn't mean a thing. How long does it take to forget somebody that dies? How long? Not very long. There's just very few that are remembered beyond the generation they lived in. If they were big leaders or founders of nations or something, or, or terrible scourges like Stalin and Hitler and Roosevelt and Churchill and some of those, then they might be remembered for a hundred or two or three hundred years, or, you know, some even for a few thousand, but not very many. So our life really means nothing here. And even those that are remembered mean nothing, because in the kingdom of God, if they're not there, they'll certainly be forgotten then. No memory of them. So this is all about the kingdom of God. It doesn't make any difference whether I live another 10, 15 years or die today. Am I going to be in the kingdom of God? It's all that counts. That's what he's trying to get across here. So, okay, if you want to be generous and give and you want people to know that you've, you've done a lot of service, you've been good, All I do is serve, I give, I help, I do this, I help people, I give money. doesn't matter what it is that you do that you're so proud of. If you brag about it, that's all the reward you get. That's the end of it. When you do service, let's not say alms, we don't use that term anymore, but service of any kind, whether it be giving money, whether it be giving of your time, your energy, your effort, your knowledge, Let not your left hand know what your right hand does. You're just supposed to be there serving and giving and helping and doing for any and everybody wherever you can. That's what we need to teach our children from the time they're small is share, give, help, serve, 
We teach them that by having them bring us this, bring us that, do this for your sister, do this for your brother. We teach them to serve and be outgoing and giving to others and then not being proud of it. Just doing it because that's the way to live. That's the way to think. Don't even let your left hand know what your right hand does. You just be so busy helping with both hands any way you can and not even being conscious of it. It takes a lot of serving and giving and doing to come to be servant-oriented to where you don't have to think, well, should I do this or should I do that? No, you've done it so much for so long it becomes automatic. And you don't keep score. Some people keep score. Well, I did this for you ten years ago. Now you need to do this for me. Scorekeeping is contrary to the Sermon on the Mount. In any kind. When he says, don't even let your left hand know what your right hand does, that certainly implies that you don't keep a list of everything you've done for somebody and for somebody else and keep score and and then remind them, well, you know, what I did for you. No, forget about it. Move on. If you if you got to have accolades for it, that's all you get. That's what God says. That's all you get. Nothing in the kingdom of God. That your service may be in secret. And your father which sees in secret himself shall reward you openly. I've known people, I've seen it right here in fact, but I've known people in the past that perceived that somebody had a need or thought they had a need and they would just come quietly put it on the porch and walk away to be discovered later. Or maybe knock on the door and run so they didn't know who it was. Or You, know, uh, you just do things, you help wherever you can help and you're not looking for any thanks You just do. And God, who sees, will reward you, not men. He says he'll reward you openly. We love praise. We love thanks, don't we? Sometimes when we do do something for someone and they don't thank you, it bothers us if they don't say thank you. I didn't expect to be paid, but couldn't have at least gotten a thank you. You know, we, we like to be thanked. We like to be appreciated. Well, that's fine. That's well and good. But on balance, just do and then expect God to reward you in His time and way and let Him thank you. Now, thanks from people are nice and we should thank people. Don't get me wrong. But we shouldn't go into a decline if we don't get thanked. We should just trust God to take care of us. And overall, I'd rather be thanked by God than man. If it came down to a choice of the two, wouldn't you? Uh, His thankfulness, his saying thank you, his rewarding is a whole lot better and means a lot more than man's reward. Even it comes down to prayer. And when you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites are. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. God isn't going to reward their prayers. He's not going to answer their prayers. He says if they pray out in the open so that men can see how much they pray, he says that's all the reward they're going to get is mankind thinking, oh, that person must be righteous or pious. That's all they're going to get from it. Now, we we take that another step. Sometimes... People will, they like to tell you how much they pray or when they pray. Maybe they don't come out in the street and do it in front of you to get recognition, but they're always wanting to tell you how much they pray or when they prayed or, or I prayed an hour or whatever. It's basically the same thing. You know, you're supposed to keep that to yourself. Go to your closet, it says in verse 6. And when you've shut your door, pray to your Father which is in secret. And your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. So prayer is between you and God. It isn't to be done in front of men, and it isn't to be bragged about in front of men. 
Now, of course, we have public prayers for services and uh, anointings and for, well, not so much anointings, they're still fairly private, but uh, for various things, we might give a public prayer. Uh, That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about your, your personal private talks with God, and they should be private, just between you and Him. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. I guess the Catholic version is going round and round and round on the beads, saying the same thing over and over, thinking God is going to reward you because you're being so diligent and doing your rosary. Uh, that's, just, that's just one element of it. Uh, be not like them, he says, for your Father knows what things you have need of before you ask Him. So we don't need to keep asking for the same thing over and over and over and over again. Uh, is He going to give you a new car just because you ask Him a hundred times instead of ten times? I doubt it. You know, uh, we can pray over and over and over about something, and, and it gets to the point where it's meaningless. Now, if we have a real need to be in prayer about it, it's not wrong. And we do have the example of the unjust judge where the woman kept coming back before him over and over because she had a real need. And he finally says, you're wearying me, woman. Have it, so you'll go away and leave me alone. Uh, so there, there is a time for that. But, but with her, it still had meaning, understand. She had a real need. So she kept coming before the unjust judge. And God even told us there in Isaiah that, that this, these things that he's promised to do, he says, give him no rest until he makes them come to pass. We're supposed to bug him about it like the woman before the unjust judge. So there are certain things that God would have us pray frequently about, but just our wants our desires, our lusts, our greeds. Uh, He knows what you need. That's what it says in the context. He knows before you ever ask what you need. And then he gives an example of how to pray, uh, right on the heels of what he just said here about vain repetition. After this manner, therefore, pray you, Our Father, not my Father, not my God, Our Father. So, Right from the very first word out of our mouth, we need to be thinking of others, not just ourselves. What's one of the commonest expressions people use in our world today? Slang, oh my God. Anything happens, oh my God. Now, it means nothing, uh, but it's my. (laughs) Have you ever heard somebody say, oh our God? I, I don't think I ever have. No, it's my God. So he makes it clear here. Our Father, inclusively us down here, not just me. Because me, me, me is real easy to come by. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. So we get things right at the beginning of a prayer. You're righteous. You're glorious. You're God. You created everything. Uh... Let's get our perspective here. I'm down here thinking I'm so important and my needs are so great and I want, I want, I want. But let's don't go there. Let's say our Father, all of us, and give glory, honor, praise, and thanksgiving to His holy name. Now we've got the right perspective to go on with other elements of the prayer. We're talking to the God of the universe here, the creator of everything. We would not even be if it were not for our Father in heaven. So, hallow his name. Then, your kingdom come. We're praying to our Father that his kingdom come for everyone, not just me. You know, when Christ returns, it's not going to be just you who's resurrected and goes into the kingdom of God. That first time is going to be 144,000. Second resurrection is going to be billions and billions of people. Probably billions from the millennium as well. So, thy kingdom come, 
your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, that's all-inclusive again. His will on earth. Now, that will not happen until his kingdom is here. Because Satan's will is being done more by far than God's will right now on this earth. There is very little that is righteous and an awful lot that is sinful. So this isn't the kingdom of God. We're to be praying for that. It is to be on our mind that our Father who created us and is all-glorious send His kingdom so that things can be here like they are there. Now, they have not always been according to His will, even in heaven. Because he who became Satan and a third of the angels rebelled against him and created war and strife and anger and hurt in heaven. So, as much as all beings sought God's will at one time in the universe, all the angels, including Satan, there came a rebellion. And God wants no more of that. He will chain Satan and his demons and any humans who will not live according to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are going to be burned up in a lake of fire and be forgotten because God will have no more rebellion in his kingdom. It just won't be. It has to be a peaceful, happy place where everybody lives according to the standards that we're reading about here. So what should our prayer be? That all mankind and all spirit beings that still survive and are available or free be in the kingdom of God according to the will of God. So here again, he's not saying that we should pray, Oh dear God in heaven, I've always wanted a ranch or I've always wanted a factory or I've always wanted an island of my own and therefore will you please give me a South Seas island and give me everything on it that I wanted uh, all my life. Bless me with this, and also a yacht and an airplane, so I can go back and forth as I please. No. He says, Thy kingdom come for all mankind. Verse 11, Give me my daily bread. There's nothing selfish yet here, is there? Give us this day our daily bread, that which we need, whether it be the physical things we need or whether it be spiritual things we need, we finally get down to, once we've addressed God and His kingdom and everything being like that, we can then begin to pray for our daily needs and not just for ourselves. Why can't everybody have that South Sea Island, you know? Well, all right, when the kingdom of God is here, it may not be a South Sea island, but everything is going to be beautiful. No more thorns, no more thistles, no more pit vipers, no more mean, nasty, angry, hateful, <coughs> murderous people. They'll all be gone. So everyone will have the things that they need daily to be happy, to be healthy, to be strong, to be full, to be warm. So, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He even says here, I'm not going to forgive your debts, your sins, unless you forgive others their debts and their sins. He says that specifically down here in a moment. It's the first thing he says after he finishes this model prayer. So we don't pray for forgiveness for just me. We pray for forgiveness for our brothers and our sisters on this earth. And lead us not into temptation, and he doesn't tempt man, but deliver us from the evil one, it should say. Because Satan is here to try to disrupt everything that points toward God's kingdom. If we try to live a godly life, if we try to live up to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we make, we make Satan angry. He likes us sinful. He likes us degraded. He likes us evil and nasty and mean and bitchy. That's the way he likes us. And that's what he tries to make us be. So God says... Pray 
that we be delivered from the evil one and not to be like him. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. The kingdom of Satan is numbered. It's almost over. He's going to make one last big try here with the new world order, and he's going to be put down. Then he's going to be released for a very short season at the end of the millennium, and then be put away permanently. So we're to pray for God's kingdom, and that Satan's kingdom be destroyed. That we every all the evil we see around us on the news daily, personal lives, and in the world, we're to be praying that His kingdom come and put that away. And that his kingdom and his power and his glory live on forever and us with it. Amen. Then he reiterates what he just alluded to in that prayer. Not only forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, but he says then, For if you forgive men their trespasses, (coughs) your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men, their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do we get that? Do we understand that? That's a hard saying. You know, somebody does something to you, or does something, whether it's to you or to somebody else, whatever that sin may be. God says to forgive it. And he says, if you don't forgive it, he won't forgive you yours. What sins do you hold against anybody? What has somebody ever done that you've not gotten over? Or when their name comes up, that comes up automatically in your mind. Because it's not forgiven. Do people bear grudges? Do people keep attitudes? Do they stay angry with each other? Do they not forgive? Whatever men do to you, whatever they do, period, whether it's to you or to somebody else, you have to be willing to forgive them if you expect to be forgiven. Now, what did Christ do? He had people trespass against him in every way imaginable, ending up with murder. And just before he died, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Set the prime, overarching, incredible example of no matter what they did to him, forgive them, Father. They had beat him, they had poked him, they had put crowns of thorns on him, they had stripped his hide off. and finally killed him. Has anybody done that to you or me? Not anywhere near that. Maybe they've said words about us. Maybe they've cursed us. Maybe they've hated us. Maybe they hold grudges against us. Whatever. God just says forgive them. That's all there is to it. And if you won't, I won't forgive you. Why is it we insist that others forgive us that we're unwilling to do the same for them. But that's the way humans are. Well, you've never apologized to me. I don't have to. Do we understand that? That person doesn't have to apologize to you. You forgive them anyway. If you want your sins forgiven, you forgive everybody else's sins. Now, an apology is nice, and we certainly as human beings should be willing to and and do apologize when we hurt somebody. I mean, that's the way to be. But if people are intransigent and they won't get over something, you've got to forgive them anyway. How can you know that they're going to forgive you? You can't do tit for tat. I'll wait till you forgive me before I forgive you doesn't work that way. Now, that's in life, as we go through life. Now, God is going to make someday some judgments, some condemnations, in fact. And He's going to put some people in the lake of fire. But why? 
because they have been unforgiving. They have been lacking in compassion. Some of them even come to hate God. Esau simply would not forgive his brother Jacob. Now, Jacob had done some wrong, hadn't he? Yeah, Jacob sinned terribly against Esau in some respects. And so did his mama. But God holds Esau accountable for his attitude, not Jacob. God holds Jacob responsible for Jacob's attitude. Before the day's over, if there's something that you hold against somebody, you ought to go get rid of it before the sun goes down tonight. I'll try to quit speaking by then. 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to fast. Truly I say to you, they have their reward. That's men looking at them and saying, Oh, you're you're so righteous, you're fasting. We generally should not even tell people when we're fasting. Comb your hair, wash your face. Uh, Don't look like you're fasting. Don't appear to be fasting. That's what he says here. When you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. (laughs) Clean up a little. Don't run around acting righteous because you're fasting. Don't appear to men to fast, but unto your Father which is in secret, and your Father which sees in secret shall reward you openly. Now, I don't think that means that we cannot, if we're facing some kind of a crisis or whatever, even communicate to each other, you know, maybe we ought to fast about this. I'm going to fast Thursday or Friday. Do you want to fast along with me? I don't think that's wrong. (coughs) Because we're working together to fulfill spiritual goals. Even it says there in Malachi that those who speak often of these things about God and about His Word and about the things that that count, he'll remember them when he makes up his jewels. So it doesn't mean we can't say once in a while, well, I, I prayed about that. doesn't mean we can't say, I'm going to fast about that. But when you actually get down to praying or fasting, you go to your closet to pray, and you anoint your face and wash your hair and, you know, and clean up and, uh, and go about your business if you have business to do. without appearing to fast. In other words, we can talk about it, we can do it together in tandem or whatever, but even then we don't, you know, all two or three or five of us that are doing it look like we're doing it. We just do it and encourage and help each other that way. Verse 19 now, this is a tough one in today's society. This, this is about as tough as it gets too. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if we're trying to amass riches and wealth on this earth, and that's our goal, and that's our purpose, and it is the purpose and the goal of most Americans, they think if they're just wealthy, everything will be okay. Uh, Money solves all problems. But I've known rich people, and all their problems weren't solved, I'll guarantee you. Most of the rich people I've known have had some serious problems attitudinally and everything else and health problems and all kinds of things so treasures on this earth aren't really going to mean anything when you die what happens to everything you amassed well your relatives fight over it and get it and blow it uh, you know or whatever but you can't take it with you they say and you can't You better have some treasure waiting in the afterlife. That's what this life is all about. It's not about amassing treasure here. Tell that to an American. 
And he'll, he'll say, oh, that's right, we ought to have treasure in heaven as he spends all his life trying to get wealth on earth. It's not what it's about. The light of the body is the eye, verse 22. If therefore your eye be single, your whole body shall be full of light. <clears throat> but if your eye be evil, your whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you be darkness, how great is that darkness? No man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money, or mammon, or, or man's way. could be translated several different ways probably there and still work. So, is God your master? Is God first? Does he take our time, our energy, uh, our attention first? Where's your heart? God says He wants our hearts. He wants us to be wholehearted. So if we're pursuing other things ahead of God, then we may not be in the kingdom of God unless we get that fixed. So what's the emphasis? What's the purpose? Is it wrong to work and make a living? No. But is the purpose to accumulate wealth? Or is the purpose to serve God and serve mankind? So then he says, uh, Take no thought for your life. Or anxious thought, it should be translated actually through here. It's all anxious. Take no anxious thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment? This life he gave us is for the kingdom of God. It's for the future. It isn't for now. It's a try a tryout for later, whether we make the team or not. It's a tryout. <clears throat> Boot camp in the military to see if you cut it as a soldier or not. So anxious thought for this life shouldn't be there. He says, The fowls of the air sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much better than they? They aren't even promised eternal life, but we are, if we'll obey Him. But God feeds the birds. He takes care of them. Uh, They find things to eat. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? You can't make yourself taller. You can't make yourself handsomer or more beautiful. Yet people spend billions of dollars trying to, to do just that, from elevator shoes and high heels to to make up to plastic surgery to you name it, what people go through to be taller or better looking or whatever so that they might be looked upon well in this life. Are we too good for our parents? You know, if your parents were short and ugly and you're short and ugly... Should you try to be tall and handsome or beautiful? Are we despising our parents? (laughs) Are we despising God for the way He made us? No, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference how beautiful or how handsome we are humanly. It doesn't matter how tall. It doesn't matter how smart. You know, being a part of the kingdom of God has nothing to do with intelligence quotient at all. It has to do with attitude and obedience and service to God. So somebody who has an IQ of 90 and somebody that has one of 140 have the same chance of being in the kingdom of God. Except the smarter guy is going to have a harder time because his ego and vanity will be in his way, like the rich man and his camel. Why take you thought for anxious thought for clothes? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not as pretty as a flower. He got the finest materials, had the finest tailors making the finest clothes, and yet he never got as pretty as a daisy. So, you know... All this time we spend trying to look physically good really means nothing. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, 
which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? It's all about faith, isn't it? You know what's going to be required of the remnant who come soon to gather to be the light of the world in Zion for God? They're going to have to have faith. Because wherever they're leaving, around the world, north, south, east, and west, they're going to be coming to a country that is coming apart. They're going to be coming just ahead of the northern army. And the famine and collapse and crash of this nation. And they're going to have to have faith wherever they happen to be. Germany, China, Mongolia, Brazil, it doesn't matter. The God will see them if they decide that they are going to make this trip because they're stirred to do it. They're going to have to have faith and trust that God's A, going to get them here, and B, when they arrive, there'll be something to eat, that there'll be a place to sleep and clothes to wear. God says, come and have milk and wine without money. So they're going to have to come without money, expecting God to take care of them. Now that's a piquant example, and it's one that is coming very, very soon to the church. Ninety percent will not have the faith of the understanding or the belief to do that. Ten percent will. Now what's he saying here to us? In our lives, whatever they are, whatever the circumstance, we have to come to trust God that if we do our part, He will take care of us. Now, He doesn't say here not to take thought of food or clothes or housing. Anxious thought is the key to worry. Now, Paul did say if you don't work, you don't eat. So you don't just sit here with your mouth open like a baby bird expecting God to just drop everything in your mouth. Uh, He expects us to work. He expects us to take care of ourselves. But He expects us not to worry. Just do the best you can and then trust Him to be sure that you'll be taken care of so that you don't have to worry and fret over wealth or accumulation or all that kind of stuff. God will take care of us. So take no anxious thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. That's what the world out there is all about. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. That's what he said right there uh, just before the sample prayer. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. The key, then... The whole reason for this teaching to his apostles to be was that they put the kingdom of God first. If you want to worry about something, worry about righteousness. If you want to worry, worry about preparing yourself for the kingdom of God and seeing what you lack, which is being poor in spirit, and seek God with your whole heart. That's what this life is all about whether it's over when you're two days old or a hundred years old, matters not. Whether you live forever in the kingdom of God is all that matters. And our wealth, our health, our intelligence, our looks, our whatever on this earth really is inconsequential by comparison. So yes, we have to live. Adam and Eve were told, even though they had everything there, they were told to dress and keep the garden. So they were to take thought of how the garden looked and how everything was and to take care of it. But they weren't to worry about it. When did they start to worry? They started worrying the minute they turned against God. They weren't worried about being naked. They worried about their attitudes. They worried about everything from then on. Then they got booted out of the garden and they worried about insects and thorns and and bad soil and not enough rain and all the things that people worry about. If they had simply taken no anxious thought when Satan came around 
And they'd said, oh, no, no, go away. We're following God. Our heart is with God. I don't know where you came from, but go away. They wouldn't have ever had to worry because God would have taken care of them as He had been. It's when we depart from God that the anxiousness begins. So get close to God and seek Him and all these things will be taken care of, He says. If you pray, pray quietly at home. If you fast, don't be seen. If you give and serve, don't keep score. Keep your mind on the kingdom of God. Serve, help, give, Treat your neighbor as well as you treat yourself and love me above everything and everything's going to turn out all right for you. So he says, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient to the day is the evil thereof. Isn't, isn't today hard enough without worrying about tomorrow too? We're not to be worry warts. We're to get over that. We're to have faith and trust in God that if we do what we're supposed to, Everything will be taken care of. But we don't have to worry about tomorrow. Just just take care of the things you have before you today, and tomorrow will take care of itself, because you have a God in heaven who has promised to care for you if you will give Him honor and glory and praise and obedience and love your neighbor as you do yourself and forgive and forget and work together as much as you possibly can, and you've got none to worry about. You'll live forever in the kingdom of God. Well, that's a good place to stop. 